we now have three modes of mindfulness of breathing. The first mode, whether in the sitting position, the supine position, the full body awareness, diffuse awareness, but not spaced out, is really, I think, very helpful for cultivating above all a sense of ease and relaxation in body and mind. And that really is the first balm for modernity. If we take the tension that we're normally carrying and try to bring that right into meditation, lots of luck. I don't think it's going to go very well. It'll tire us out and make us really high-strung, maybe fragile, so that as soon as we step out of the meditation retreat center, where just everything jars us. Not so helpful. So the first one is this full-body awareness, and it be, if I liken this to gear shift, this is first gear, first gear four-wheel drive for your all-terrain vehicle. And envision this, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it might one day, and that is you might have a really rough day <laughs> with a lot of emotional ups and downs and frustrations and anxieties and, and just one of those really gnarly, nasty days, and you get through it at the end of the day and you're just wound up in knots. It's been an unpleasant day. You're tight, you're stressed out, and it's only 7.30 at night, and you just can't fall asleep. It's like, who goes to bed at 7.30? And you've got a choice to make, because you really feel pretty rotten. It's been not a nice day. Well, you can always kill time, and you can always apply an anesthetic to what is ailing you. Television, conversation, who knows how you want to kill time. And I know from my experience, if I've had such a day like that, and I think, hey, Alan, you could be sitting like this for the next hour. I want to flip that person the bird. Give me a break. Were you not listening? I've had a terrible day. I don't want to sit in meditation like that. I'm already wasted. Give me a break here. And then someone else comes to mind and said, would you like to go into your bedroom, soften the lights, lie on top of your bed, throw over just a throw blanket on top of yourself, go into complete Shavasana and go into meltdown and breathe out a lot? Oh, that sounds okay. I think I'm up for that, which means I'm down for that. (laughs) And I know very much from my own experience, if I do that for an hour, how I feel after coming out of an hour of that, now it's 8.30 at night, rather than watching, I don't know, two and a half men twice, or any of the other crap they put on there at 7.30 at night, you know, just watching television or newspapers or whatever, the feeling in the body and mind is utterly different. You feel a lot better. You feel a lot better. So that's a possibility. That is, this first gear, four-wheel drive, supine position, just go into the infirmary with a very loving, gentle way. And remember, if you will, the etymology of the word attention, which is becoming one of my favorite words in the English language. Attention. It goes back to the Latin, which means to tend to, as in watch over, care for, and look after. As a shepherd tends his sheep, a mother looks after her child, Friends care for each other. That ambience. This is not a taskmaster waiting, waiting to judge, waiting to rep- reprimand and crack the whip when we're not up to snuff. It's a way of attending to the body, attending to the mind in a gentle and soothing fashion to heal the wounds of the day, the infirmary. So first resort there. For most of us, not all of our days are that gnarly. But a lot of our days in this fast-paced life, way of life, of modernity, 
do have a lot of multitasking, a lot of input, a lot of things happening, and we get home and we don't feel terrible. It's just the mind is fizzing with thoughts of this and that and the other thing and planning and remembering and blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's not really distressing. It's, it's awfully noisy in here. You know? And perhaps this isn't daunting, but still the supine may be better. And in this case, it's not so much of unraveling the pent-up or wrought-up nerves, but just calming and gentling and subduing this obsessive and compulsive mind. You might want to focus on your tummy. Breathing in, breathing out, nice and grounded. You can do it in the supine, do it in sitting, but it's second gear. You're gently introducing the element of stabilizing, calming, subduing the wild stallion of your mind, and calming the obsessive and compulsive flow of thought. That's good. It's gentle. On other days, you may have just a pretty good, pretty normal day, pretty good day, hopefully. And not particularly rambunctious. The mind is not particularly agitated. It's just kind of normal, which means dysfunctional. <laughs> that is, we still have OCDD, you know. It's still there. It hasn't gone away. In which case, you know, the thought of there, pretty fresh at the end of the day, you've had a nice dinner. The kids are doing their own thing, whatever. You have children at home. You say, no. Why not? Sitting in a quiet room, sitting like this, comfortably, and coming up here, third gear. Why not? I'm up for it. And then it feels so good, so soothing. So there's three different modes. Full body awareness for relaxation, abdomen for relaxation and stability. Up here, relaxation, stability, and vividness. But here's the key point. It's really crucial. As you're moving into the cultivation of stability, do not let it occur or develop at the cost of relaxation, but rather the synergy, greater stability coming out of deeper relaxation. And likewise, when we start sh sharpening the knife, sharpening the blade of attention so it gets sharper, more acute, high resolution, not at the cost of setting up an underlying vibration, a fizziness, a, a wobbliness, losing the stability. So as we add one to the other, see that it's always synergistic, the root, the trunk, and the branches. Okay? Then this practice is safe. It's really safe. And it's not invasive. We're not introducing some alien feature into the system and wondering how it's going to work out. Attending to what's already taking place in a very healthy way and trusting the body to balance itself by way of breathing. On that note, we're now going to move into... Another corollary practice, this one is specifically from the Tibetan tradition, especially the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions, utterly congruent with the whole Theravada tradition. And for those of you who train in Vipassana, as I give the instruction on this, you might think, why are you calling that shamatha? It's Vipassana. I've been introduced to this before, something very similar to it. And that's exactly the point at which I have absolutely no interest in quibbling over semantics. This is a shamatha practice in the sense that it, it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. It does what shamatha is supposed to do induces a deeper sense of ease, stability, and vividness. And eventually we'll see the mind actually as subtle in its natural state, which I'll probably talk about, well, I will, more tomorrow morning. So it's performing the function of shamatha. Can this same practice, the way I'll teach it momentarily, can this give rise to profound and even transformative insights into the very nature of the mind and mental events? The answer is yes. In which case, is this an insight practice? Does it walk and, and quack like an insight duck? And yeah, it does. So it's right on the cusp. It's right on the cusp. So there it is. It can do double duty. It's a marvelous practice. It's ever so simple, and it's enormously profound. But the profundity does not come from the Buddha, let alone from this guy, this dead man talking. 
it doesn't come from outside. It has enormous profundity. It's awesome profundity. But the profundity is of your own awareness. That's where all the depth and the transformative power of this practice is coming from. You already have it. You're not getting it from outside. So let's do one 24-minute session and see what it's like. It's called Settling the Mind in Its Natural State. Roll out the red carpet. Let the, in, the entrance into the meditation be soothing and inviting as you let your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground and fill the space of your body as before, settling your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. Taking a special note of that sweet spot at the very end of exhalation. And you see the breath just flowing in. You don't need to take it. It's freely given. Relax so deeply and so fully. The breath just comes in effortlessly. For a little while, let your awareness continue to pervade the whole field of the body, from the earth element where your body is in contact with the ground, right to the crown of the head. So for a little while, let the object of mindfulness be the space of the body and whatever tactile sensations arise within that space. We're being selective. We're not deliberately attending to sounds, apart from just the speech, which is necessary for a moment. We're not deliberately attending to thoughts and memories and mental images. We're just letting them be, releasing them, and focusing continuously on the space of the body illuminating the whole space and attending to whatever tactile sensations arise within that space from moment to moment. 
There's the experience of the earth element, any sensations of firmness and solidity. (coughs) The water element, experience of fluidity and moisture. The fire element, the whole gradient from cold to hot. The air element, all manifestations of motion, vibration, tingling. including, of course, the motions of the breath. Sustain the flow of this mindfulness of the space of the body and whatever Bodily sensations arise within that space without distraction. Sustain the flow of mindfulness without being carried away to other sensory fields or carried away to the realm of thoughts and memories. Without distraction. Sustain your mindfulness without distraction and without grasping, which is a subtler challenge. Without engaging with any of these sensations, with desire or aversion, without hope or fear, without preference. Without superimposing the sense of I and mine, attending to them by simply being present with them, these events arising in the space of the the body. Gently open the eyes, at least partially, and let your gaze rest vacantly in the space in front of you. So without attending to any visual object, any shape or color, just rest your awareness in space, taking nothing as a visual object, resting in space. your eyes be utterly relaxed, blink whenever you feel like it. Soft and relaxed. And now direct your attention to one out of six domains of experience 
We have the visual, the auditory, the domains of the five physical senses. And then there are events appearing directly to our awareness that do not come by way of any of the five physical senses. The arising of discursive thoughts, of internal chit-chat, of mental images, of desires and emotions. It is the domain in which dreams arise, the space of the mind. This now is the object of mindfulness, the space of the mind and whatever mental events arise within that domain of experience. Where is that domain? How large is it? Where is it located? If you're first entering this practice, you might find it helpful as a preliminary exercise to deliberately generate a mental event and focus on it as you do so. Let's try one. A discursive thought. And it really could be any thought at all. But let's take this one. The thought, this is the mind. Very deliberately, rather ponderously, generate this thought syllable by syllable. And as you do so, direct your full attention to the emergence of each syllable of that sentence. This is the mind. thought is over. It's dissolved back into the space of the mind. Keep your attention right where it was, because you've planted your attention in the domain of the mind. Remain there, vigilantly, attentively. And observe the next event that arises in that domain of experience. Arising spontaneously. Whatever thoughts, memories, images come to mind, let them be illuminated, quite naturally illuminated by your awareness, and simply observe their nature without reacting to them or trying to control or modify them in any way, whatever they may be. Let them be and attend to them closely from moment to moment. This is possible if and only if the body is very relaxed and your awareness is soft, loose, spacious. It's as if your awareness itself becomes space that illuminates all the events taking place in space, but without becoming involved, fused, contracted.
out of habit, thoughts are bound to arise that do in fact capture us and carry us away. Instead of attending to what's arising in the present moment in the space of the mind, the attention is caught and catapulted off to the referent of the thought that arises. We are there and then. As soon as you see that excitation has arisen, your mind has been carried away. Noting this with your faculty of introspection, let your first response be to loosen up. Relax your grip on the thought. Return to the present moment. And observe whatever is arising right now in the space of the mind. Let your breathing flow utterly, unimpededly, and you may experiment to see whether it's better or helpful to breathe through your nostrils or through your mouth. Let the breathing be effortless and unimpeded. Times, especially in the beginning of this practice, your awareness may, may, may become nebulous, a bit spaced out, unfocused. You may once again deliberate, deliberately generate a discursive thought, but let's try this time a mental image. It could be the face of a loved one, a landscape, something with which you're familiar. Bring the mental image to mind, clearly and distinctly. Attend to it closely. naturally it will dissipate and disappear back into the space of the mind. Keep your attention as before. Focused right where it was, in the present moment, noting the very next mental event that arises within that domain.
Shamatha practice invariably entails a flow of knowing, this face-to-face quality, this engagement with the object of mindfulness. If at any time you find yourself sitting simply spaced out, not really attending to anything, you fall into laxity or dullness. Note this introspectively. Arouse your attention, take a fresh interest. Focus on the domain of the mind and whatever events arise therein. When there is clinging, there is motion. When we grasp onto the contents, the events and processes of the mind, the attention is moved. So relax, so loosen up, that even as thoughts and images come and go, your awareness remains still, hovering without grasping. In the present moment, Whether the thoughts and images arising to the mind or in the mind, whether they are pleasant or unpleasant, coarse or subtle, long or short, virtuous or non-virtuous, whatever they may be, let your response be homogenous. Let them be. Observe their nature, but without preference a total relinquishment of control. Let them be and observe their nature from moment to moment. There's only one thing we do seek to control, and that is the quality of attention we bring to the space of the mind and its contents. If our attention falls into excitation or distraction, trim the sails of your mind, relax, loosen up. Return your awareness to the present moment.
If you drift into laxity, becoming spaced out or nebulous, arouse your attention, refocus, trim the sails of your mind. But as for the rest, whatever arises in the space of the mind, just let it be and develop the stability and vividness of attention with respect to that space and whatever arises within it. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
last night I spoke at some length about the possibility of achieving greater freedom. Greater freedom to make wise and compassionate decisions as opposed to decisions that are foolish and self-destructive and possibly harmful to others. And rather than asking simply the, phys- the philosophical or metaphysical question, do we have free will? <coughs> rather taking this from a purely pragmatic perspective and looking back on our lives, we've all been around for a few decades at least, and simply recalling from our own experience, were there times when I had more freedom and times when I had less freedom? I remember when I was 18, I got drunk once. I had very little freedom when I was drunk. I couldn't even, stand, I couldn't even walk a straight line. It was a night. I walked into a stump. I fell. I, I shinned. I, I you know, bumped my knee. And then I got into bed, and I threw up. <laughs> I had no freedom in that choice. I had no freedom. Shall I throw up tonight or not? Do I have free will or do I not? <laughs> you know, there was no freedom at all. It was just <laughs> like that. I couldn't even walk straight. That's not freedom. That's really lack of freedom. And likewise, when, as I mentioned last night, very briefly, but whenever we get caught in the grip, we enter into one of those refractory periods where we can only see reality through the lens of the emotion, the mental affliction, or what have you, of the moment. That's not free. That's not free. Because I can't even see outside of that lens. I'm locked in. That's not free. And sometimes less free and sometimes more free. But now let's shift gears just for fun. We're not always awake. Sometimes we fall asleep. When we fall asleep, sometimes we dream. And in most of our dreams, probably for most of us, the dreams are not lucid, which means we basically and fundamentally got it all wrong. We're dreaming. We don't know we're dreaming. And that's a big mistake. Right? So there you are cruising along in what really seems to be just what's happening, like we call it reality, but we don't know what's going on. We don't actually know this isn't really a person here. And all these people around me are not actually persons. There's nobody looking back. And I look at the pillars in the, in, the, in, the, in the room and so forth and the walls, and I think, wow, it's a cool room, but there's not a molecule there. It's not a room. It's not constructed of anything except configurations of your own mind. <clears throat> in a non-lucid dream, by and large, when events arise, something attractive arises, something unattractive arises, and so forth, the response is automatic and it's habitual. And about 75 80% of dreams tend to be fraught with anxiety. I would be anxious too. Why shouldn't we be? We fundamentally are deluded. We got it all fundamentally, radically to the root. We got it wrong. And there we are wandering through the dream, not noting how totally anomalous things are, not even noticing how totally weird this is, that maybe this isn't normal. And so in a non-lucid dream, the, the extent of freedom is very limited because it's just saturated by delusion. And it's really overwhelmingly dominated by sheer habit. That's not very free. That's not very free. Now, some of you, I'm sure, I don't even need to ask for a raise of hands. Some of you, I'm sure, have had the experience of lucid dreaming. You're there in the dream, and lo and behold, you know you're dreaming while you're dreaming. And just apart from the flat-out euphoria of it, because it feels really good, Suddenly, when you know that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, suddenly the bandwidth of freedom is just expanded like an accordion. And that is, if you don't, if you don't like your environment, well, heck, change it. Fly away. You know, 
you've got a, you've got a wide range of freedom of making choices and so forth because fundamentally you got it right. You're dreaming and you know it. And there's much, much greater freedom. Right. It's not just automatic response, stimulus, response, stimulus, response, operating in a kind of mindless, automatic fashion. So there's a lot to be said for waking up within the dream and recognizing what's actually going on. Now, I think this is a very powerful, not only a metaphor, but a very close parallel to what's taking place in the mind during the daytime. And that is, in a lucid dream, you're dreaming and you know you're dreaming. So basically, you got it right, and now you can start working with that reality. What we're cultivating in this practice of settling the mind in its natural state is becoming lucid with respect to the mind during the waking state. And that is when we're thinking, we recognize we're thinking. When mental images arise, we recognize them as mental images and not as the referent of those mental images. Right? That's a big deal. So how often in our waking experience, have we been beaten up, mauled, mugged, and brutalized by our own minds more viciously than almost anybody will encounter during the daytime? Really, that can be merciless. How is it that the, the mind, just thoughts and images and memories, have such a power over us that they, they can give us agony, misery, and drive some people, frankly, to suicide? Because not many people, I don't think, I'm no expert, but I don't think many people I don't think the majority of people who commit suicide do so because of physical pain. I imagine that must happen, of course. I don't think it's a majority. The pain is there. It's absolutely real, but it's mental. As events arising in the space of the mind, to attend to them as if attending to a lucid dream, and recognizing mental events as mental events from moment to moment to moment. So even if they're the flow, the outflow of thoughts, memories, and so forth and so on, is obsessive in the sense of its free flow, well, now we're saying, if you want to be obsessive, go for it, and I'm going to watch. Give it your best shot, my. Just go for it. Go bananas. Go crazy. Just go into free association. I'm opening up the taps. No restraint. Go for it, mind. Knock yourself out. Be as obsessive as you like, but I'm going to be watching. And what I'm not going to allow is the comp compulsive or the delusional aspect. I'm not going to allow. I will not tolerate being yanked around, jerked around, abducted, absconded, ab tortured by every doggone thing that rises in the mind. I've had it. Really, it's enough is enough. So blabber on if you like. I'll watch. I'll be really patient. I'll just sit there and watch you blab your mind out. But I'm not going to be compulsively drawn in, and I'm not going to mistake all this crap for reality, except for the reality that is the crap of the mind. That's fair enough. A dream is a dream, and that is its own reality. But recognizing thoughts as thoughts, images as images, arising in the present moment, and not being caught up and catapulted off to the reference of the thoughts. This is freedom. We, we will not, at least I will not, I think I can probably generalize, to do this practice doesn't mean that suddenly we have freedom for those mental afflictions, resentment, craving, hostility, and so forth, ever to arise again. That's not, that's not on the label. Right. It is to say that we may be present, and you old Vipassana meditators, you don't hardly even need to be told this. You've heard this before, but now it's in the shamatha context. I'm just saying these are like brother and sister. They're just peas in a pod. And mindfulness is common both to shamatha and vipassana. And this practice, you can see now why it's on the cusp. And that is, as you're attending, whatever comes up, just being present with it, and not sucked up and caught in the grip of what comes up, 
releasing the cognitive fusion and attending to that, you have instant freedom. As you're free in a lucid dream, you're not the victim of anything that happens in the dream if, you're, if you are lucid. Because it's a dream. Got no substance to it. Got no clout. It's just a dream. Right? This is instant freedom. Not, not ultimate. It's not arhatship, not enlightenment. But we're not captured. We're attentive to. Any more than space is captured by a star or a planet. It's present, but it's not sucked into. Hmm. The practicality of this, not only when we're sitting on the cushion and experiencing freedom with respect to what's arising in the mind, but ever so importantly, when we get off the cushion. Most of us are not spending most of the 16 or 17 hours a day on the cushion. When we are, then we're very fortunate. But in the meantime, most of us are spending more time off than on. To cultivate this ability, this metacognitive awareness, this awareness of what's taking place in the mind from moment to moment, throughout the course of the day, and encountering different people, situations, places, and so forth, and noting this metacognitively or introspectively, noting the impulses and so forth that are arising in the mind that are being dished up, dished up, and noticing them as they're being dished up, as being dished up, there is, once again, as I mentioned last night, but more of a, in a, just a simple talk mode, and here we're really oriented towards practice. If we right there in the present moment can be attending to that little flame of craving, of selfishness, hostility, resentment, and so forth, we've had some pretty, down in Santa Barbara, we've had some pretty big fires recently. 250,000 acres, 80,000 acres. My house was evacuated twice. So, you know, we've gotten pretty accustomed to fires. And we all know that if you, if you go out into that dry brush in, Ju- in July, August, and you drop a match, just drop one match in the dry brush in this very dry mountain, a little five-year-old could come over in a, in a, with a barefoot and go, the forest fire's out. Five-year-old barefoot puts out forest fire. Right? Not a big deal. Let the wind catch it. And you got 3,000 firefighters risking their lives to put out the flame that a five-year-old could have put out with a, with a bare foot. Pretty powerful image. And the Buddha used this. He said, the, he said, samsara, the world, is a flame with mental afflictions. A flame with mental afflictions. This practice is to call in the five-year-olds. <laughs> There's a match that's just dropped. Call in the five-year-olds. We don't have to stamp it out. If you want to stamp out, that's your call. But simply being present right there when the first match is dropped in the tinderbox of your mind, you just see it there. And simply attending to it, it's not fed. And not, feed, not being fed, the match burns up and that's it. And it's gone. It just disappears back into the space of the mind. It, the Tibetan term is randurla, randurla. It releases itself without an antidote coming in from outside. Cognitive behavioral therapy or Shantideva or Lojong practices from Tibetan Buddhism or the four immeasurables and so forth. These are all outside things we can bring to the injured mind, the afflicted mind. But by simply attending, the match just burns itself out and that's it. It doesn't ignite and cause the whole mind to go aflame. Freedom. You might have noticed I like images. Here's my image. As a person who 
gosh, I'm thinking it's now 40 years ago. I used to be quite an avid bird watcher. Love bird watching. And one of my favorite birds to watch was the kestrel or the sparrow hawk. It's our smallest falcon, not much bigger than a pigeon, but crafted. Oh, the design, the elegance of this small falcon is just gorgeous. It's an exquisite bird. And the falcon, like many other uh, occipiters and falcons, they do something we're all familiar with, and it's called kiting. The falcon will face into the wind and with very small movements of its pin feathers, its tail feathers, remain almost motionless with respect to the ground and yet flying. So we've all seen it. So, but imagine, if you know what a kestrel looks like, marsh hawks do it, many falcons do this, facing into the wind, and then just these slight movements. Now the wind will be some come, come at five miles an hour, and then it'll be a 10 mile an hour gust. It'll come from this direction, that direction. Wind is not constant. So the, the falcon there is just very much in the present moment. Now the, the sparrow hawk, or the kestrel, looking down for the grasshoppers and mice that it would love to have for lunch. That's what he's doing. But in the meantime, just hovering, holding on to nothing, and yet remaining stationless. It's a beautiful image. It's a very true image. This practice of settling the mind in its natural state is one in which you let the kestrel of your awareness face into the winds of the mind and kite into the wind. Grasping onto nothing, you're not grasping onto a mantra, an image, a belief. Grasping onto nothing at all. You're facing into the wind of this ongoing, but not homogenous, not continuous stream of a thought coming up, and then an image coming up, and a memory coming up, and a fantasy coming up. Maybe it's a desire, it's an emotion, another thought comes up, and they're coming in from one angle and another, and sometimes they're coarse and harsh, and other times pleasing and soothing, sometimes just flat out silly and ridiculous. All different which ways, and there you are, while the thoughts are about this and that and the past and the future and all which way, they're about everything else, there you are just facing into the wind of the thoughts and images in the present moment, hovering, not latching onto, not pulling away from, not lunging towards, hovering motionless, letting your awareness be still like space, your body still like a mountain, in the midst of the ongoing flow, the rush of mental events arising from moment to moment. It's a profound practice. So you do not allow yourself to be swept backwards into the past, sucked forwards into the future. You're hovering delicately in the present moment. Whatever arises, you simply let it be and attend to it closely. And that's a practice. The practice has two large facets to it. One traces back in the Western tradition to the Delphic Oracle, one of the oldest aphorisms in Western civilization. Know thyself. Know thyself. And it echoes throughout East and West, ancient and modern. Oh, it's got to be a good thing. Even if it's not always so pleasant. But know thyself. And here we are. We're facing the mind without anesthetic with no elevator music, no padding, no mediation, ringside seat, welcome to your mind, here it is, blow by blow account. It's real, it's real. A way to know the mind by attending to it directly. 
and refining this one out of our six modes of perception that has, in fact, enormous, perhaps inconceivable plasticity. My eyes are almost 60 years old. I don't think there's any eye exercise I can ever do that's going to get me back to 20-20 vision for reading. If, it, if there's something like that, let me know, because this is just a hassle, these things. Illiterate without them, what a bummer. Not very malleable. In my family, my father doesn't hear so well, I'm probably on that track. So hearing aid, probably waiting for me about 10, 20 years down the road. Not much I can do about it. About among the five physical senses, not a whole lot of plasticity. A little bit, but nothing to write home about. Among the six modes of perception, there is one that is exceptionally plastic, lending itself to refinement, perhaps even inconceivably so, and that is mental perception. That's what shamat is for. It is polishing the lenses, establishing a firm foundation, a telescope for the mind to observe the space of the mind, the events that arise within that space. And when we speak of vividness, relaxation, pretty clear, stability, transparent, not difficult to understand. Vividness, not much more complex, but just unpack it a little bit more, especially in the context of this practice. And I'll be brief because we have only minutes to go. Vividness, let's unpack it. It's a really important term, really cool term. I want to use as an analog, or a parallel to this, Paul Ekman's work of the facial action coding system, facts, where you learn how, you learn to train yourself to recognize two types of expressions that normally oh, fall beneath the threshold of ordinary people's consciousness. And one of these are subtle expressions, as I recall. The other ones are micro-expressions. Subtle expressions are ones where you don't see the whole face light up in surprise and anguish and d delight and so forth. You find out of something, I think it's 35 muscle groups in the face, you'll find one or two of them get tweaked a little bit. And the tweaking may last for seconds. But for those seconds, it's indicating an expression. Something is being pressed out. Most people won't notice it. But it will be a tightening of eyes, muscles around the eyes, around the mouth. Something will shift. And a person highly trained, as Paul Ekman certainly is, will recognize these subtle expressions that linger for seconds but most people just don't notice it and don't know what to make of it, even if they do notice it. Subtle expressions. The other are micro-expressions, if I recall, and I can actually be wrong semantically here, but I know the gist of it is, is correct. The micro-expressions, these are ones that may be full-blown. They may be really moving multiple muscle groups throughout the face, but they flash on for a fleeting moment, a fraction of a second, 100 milliseconds. But they're there, and it's gone, right? But if you, could, if you could do the, you know, slow it down and see it frame by frame, you say, pull. But it happens so quickly, a lot of us won't even notice it. So that's the, that's the analog here. And that is just as there are expression, expressions that are subtle but linger for seconds and other ones that are full-blown but last for, you know, just fractions of a second. Likewise, when we're attending to the space of the mind, there, are event, there will be events. There are events. It's not future. It's right now, in the present moment. There are events taking place that are subtle. They linger for seconds. It could be a desire. It could be an emotion. It could be a discursive thought that barely even crosses the threshold of awareness. All kinds of things. They linger. They go on for seconds. But they're quiet. They murmur rather than shout. And we don't notice them. So we call them subconscious. There are events that take place in the mind 
that are robust, loud, and brassy, but they last for 100 milliseconds. It could be an image, an impulse, a desire, an emotion, a memory that hits like a bolt of lightning and it's gone. We don't even notice. Perhaps because we're attending elsewhere. The, our attention was riveted to something out in the environment or to cooking beans or something else. And these events are taking place beyond, beneath the threshold of consciousness because we're attending to something else. In this practice, the domain of the mind is front and center, and whatever arises in it is exactly the grist for our mill. And there we are developing not only this deepening sense of ease and the continuity of stability, but now these two types of vividness, qualitative and temporal, are being honed like a razor. As we attend and attend, the relaxation going deeper, the stability strengthening, and the vividness becoming more and more acute as we do so, we will find that, in fact, we are discerning, we are noting, and therefore able to report on events taking place in the mind that previously were simply subconscious, in the sense of not being conscious. Bold, strong, but extremely fleeting. But the temporal vividness picks them up. It notes these events that last only one-tenth of a second. Subtle murmurings of the mind, a thought that is just beneath the threshold, cross of the threshold, because we're attending to, with this qualitative vividness, discerning, noting clearly, ascertaining subtle perturbations of the mind. That which had been subconscious is becoming conscious. Do this for 20 or 40 minutes a day, and it's going to be very good for your mental hygiene. Add to sanity, add to freedom, add to the ability throughout the course of the day to attend to, recognize quickly, the little flame that's been, the little match that's been thrown into your mind, recognizing, ah, is that something I want to allow to spread or would I like to just watch it disappear into oblivion? Bye. Gone. It's a choice. We actually have a choice if we notice. And if we don't notice, we don't have a choice. Freedom of will, forget about it. The word doesn't mean anything. If you're not even aware of what's taking place, how can we even talk about choice? It doesn't mean anything. So this practice is one of dredging the psyche, of knowing thyself, and that's one facet. And the other large facet is absolutely awe-inspiring. And it relates back to the issue, can we trust our bodies? Knowing full well we need doctors. This is absolutely no substitute for medical care when we need medical care, but so much we can do in addition to receiving outside intervention. And likewise, there's an, this hardly needs to be said, and I'll say it briefly, there is a wonderful role for psychologists, wise, experienced, well-trained psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists who can really bring their wisdom, their experience to so many things that most of us just don't have the expertise for. This is not a substitution for that. But what are the psychologists, frankly, good for? The, clini the clinicians. They're good for a lot. And what they're good for is to help the mind heal itself. How can we assist the assister? How can we enter into this collaboratively and not just come to the doctor and say, heal me? You know? And what is awesome about this practice, and it's not from Buddha or me or the Dalai Lama or anybody else outside, what is awesome is coming from inside, and that is with this simple practice of attending in exactly the way described, luminously, clearly, discerningly, wakefully, calmly, and peacefully, attending to what's arising from moment to moment, 
that itself is a healing process. It's not what you're adding to it, because you're adding nothing to it. It entails an enormous amount of not doing, not getting caught up, not ruminating, not fixating, not being captured by and exacerbating, not reliving the experience time and time again, which I understand neurophysiologically is very similar to actually having the experience all over again. And psychologically, I've been told it's the same. Ruminate, get caught up, and you've been traumatized twice, and now three times, and four times, except for it only happened once, and the rest was a freebie. By fixating on thoughts and getting caught up in them, by not doing that, and yet not going into repression, into dissociation, into suppression, none of the above, or getting involved in, captured by, but just simply being present with, we're keeping the wounds of the mind clean. I can't say it in any better way. The mind gets wounded, and we all know that. The mind gets injured by experiences, life experiences, by attending to the images and so forth that come up relevant to earlier experiences and attending to them with this loving, attentive, luminous quality of awareness. We allow the mind to heal itself and we watch it happen. We watch the afflictions of the mind heal themselves which suggests volumes about the ground from which they are rising that is not afflicted and toxic all the way down. I think on that note, we can bring this afternoon to a close. And I hope there's something beneficial for you today. You're welcome. See you, some of you, tomorrow. And the other ones, enjoy the football game. <laughs> or even more pressing issues that I know some of you have. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.